people say it's far-fetched, but that's the example I often take is if the car was flying you to your cottage every night, I bet you wouldn't mind paying double for your car. And that's what we need in order to shift dramatically away from oil. You're about to hear my conversation with Benoit Gervais. We had a wide-ranging conversation talking about the importance of efficiency in global resource investing, the changes in price of oil and how storage of oil impacts the price, and inflation and its overall impact on gold. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Benoit Gervais. Benoit is the Senior Vice President and Head of our Resources Team, a team that manages over $2 billion worth of resource assets. Benoit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation, Benoit. Let's get started with how you became interested in the investment business and particularly global resources. Well, I started my career 20 years ago, so times were for sure very different. I had a chance to taste what an engineering job would feel like uh, 25 years ago, enough to make me want to go back to school and uh, get into economics at Colorado School of Mines, uh, where there was at the time already a big movement, um, uh, activist movement on the environment, and allowed me to really bring in different sphere uh, beyond the technical skills that you required as an engineer, the skills, the mathematical skills that you require as an economist, you had to bring in the environment, the social angle. And there was one place that could do this uh, it was the investment world. Because in, in, in the resource land, you really need to have all sphere um, to make this work. So if you can in- interpret, read, and I guess ultimately turn this into numbers and dollars, uh, what is very often very subjective uh, so the social skills or the environment, uh, particularly at the time, was more of a subjective question. Um, then I thought you could have a really successful cure. Interesting. So, so the combination, I guess, or intersection of uh, both your engineering background, uh, along with an interest in numbers and the environment, um, leads you to your career at, uh, to invest in, in global resources. Um, you mentioned you've been in the business for 20 years. How long have you been at McKenzie? 20 years. So I'm intrigued by your comment about uh, environmentalism being one of the key uh, factors that leads you to this career. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more details in just a moment. First, I'm hoping that you can define what your investment universe is. As I said at the top, you're a global resource manager. What does that mean practically? Uh, how many companies do you look at? What types of companies? And that would, that's what makes uh, investment so appealing is you, you have some leeway as to how you're defining your universe. And McKinsey 
uh, was early in defining the investment universe as treating it as global. And that's one of the other reasons why I joined McKinsey 20 years ago. We were one of the first, if not the first firm in Canada wanting to go global and expand our horizon into other industries, which brought you necessarily outside of Canada, but also another jurisdiction where you have the same business, uh, but different cost base, different revenue base, different people. And so we quickly were one of the first few investors uh, in Canada, b being in Russia, being in Africa, being in Brazil, where resources are uh, rich. And Mother Nature doesn't divide uh, resources equally, so you do have to travel in those uh, odd places. Uh, the other part was we wanted to define resources broadly, uh, rather than how Canada defines itself, where we do have a lot of land, we do have a lot of resources, but we do not have all resources. There isn't much iron ore. There are a lot of trees. There is uh, some oil, some gas, uh, but refining, for instance, that happens in the Gulf Coast of the right. United States. Um, so we we were early on recognized as leaders. And I think that Fred Sturm at the time who hired me 20 years ago out of uh, my mass after my master was very keen in defining McKenzie as a leader in resource land through a global approach. So uh, you invest globally. You mentioned uh, sort of the traditional resource companies, I'll say. So when I think resources, I think uh, metals and mining, oil and gas. Um, I think your universe is a little bit broader than that. You mentioned uh, uh, forestry uh, when you were talking about um, uh, Canada. What other types of sub-industries do you look for uh, opportunities in? So you start with the very basic commodities, uh, the ones that the earth crust uh, contains, uh, like you've named a few iron ore, copper, and so on, uh, the right. trees, and ultimately the first degree of transformation, which leads you into chemical land, uh, but also in transport, the transport of commodities, whether it's by pipelines, by boat, um, uh, or in refining, you turn into a, an oil barrel into a liter of gasoline. Uh, same applies for some of those other chemicals. So you, you think of resources really as what the mother nature has created and probably one or two iteration or processes uh, away from what mother nature has created. Got it. Um, that's an interesting way to define the universe. I, I like it. Um, in our uh, meeting to prepare for this podcast, you, you mentioned that you thought that the theme that would come across most is sustainability. Um, can you elaborate on, on sustainability, why you think it's so important to your uh, investment process and how you view uh, your, your investment uh, universe and, uh, and, and how you incorporate that in thinking about resource companies? Yeah, so early on uh, at school and at McKinsey, we agreed that a winning investment had to be at the intersection of a good engineered project, a socially and environmentally sanctioned project, and finally had to produce profits. And that was new. Uh, 20 years ago, not so new today. And I think there's a recognition that externalities, whatever they may be, that you produce as an enterprise, not just in resources, 
has to be factored in. If you're going to hurt or impact the lives of people, they need to be compensated and you need to generate a benefit that exceeds uh, the cost to those uh, same people. Um, and today what's a little bit different is there's, there seems to be more of a price to all of those externalities. So over that span of 20 years, we've gone from something that was quite subjective to today where we're talking about pricing carbon, which is an externality uh, and generates a greenhouse gas emission or uh, recognizes global warming. So we have to reconciliate uh, the environment, the people, the profits. Um, I am responsible for other people's uh, future retirement plan. And how do you how do you do that when you're thinking about investing in the individual companies that comprise your portfolio? Um, that balance seems like there's some natural tensions there uh, where externalities are uh, in some cases not priced accordingly. Uh, in some cases, um, companies can uh, increase profitability, uh, at least over the short term, by uh, reducing sort of the the cost layouts for some of the sustainability uh, factors. Um, so how do you, how do you, how do you think about companies given that tension and ultimately construct your portfolio or make your selections? So it's always been factored in. Uh, we always factored in whether there was a, a cost that was laid on others and externalities in, in whatever our companies were doing. Uh, so we got some good stories in there. And, and, and very early on in my career, we, we had to make peace with some of those externalities as being uh, properly priced in your investment. Was there enough left after you've taken care of those externalities? Uh, so 20 years ago or 19 years ago, um, if we look back, I think maybe 18 years ago, Talisman was under, for those who remember Talisman Energy, a large international successful at the time, a petroleum company based in Calgary, but had operations all over the world, uh, had operations in Sudan of all places, which as you can imagine, had a very poor track record on human rights. And even sure. at the time, even human rights uh, weren't as big a deal. It was a big deal in, in the world. The Talisman was operating in Sudan and indirectly, if you want, supporting a regime that was oppressing people. Yes. Our, one of our clients, the Jesuits, uh, which uh, took at heart uh, the fate of some of those people, uh, was debating with us whether it was, uh, even though it was a, a, a profitable company, at the right price, uh, with a good operational uh, history of performing, whether it was justified to keep this holding within the portfolio. And we uh, had a, a long discussion at the time already about staying involved. One of the best way to influence the outcome is to be present where there are externalities. So in this case, it wasn't an environmental externality, but a social externality. Are you helping those people by being present? If you do not think so, then how can you get into a position where you will have a positive impact uh, through your values, perhaps? Uh, so at first, I wanted to divest 
And I think that uh, today sustainability is, moved, is moving slowly away from this, uh, I would say, exclusion list, which once you've sold, you have very little impact uh, right. to staying involved and convincing the company to make changes wherever it is operating. In the end, unfortunately, there was so much pressure. And I think that's why we were at the time in an exclusion type of environment when it came to sustainability. Talisman had to sell out at a good price, but unfortunately to the Chinese. So you can imagine uh, that really the people of Sudan didn't really improve their uh, fate when it came to human rights if compared to perhaps if they had been involved with a Canadian company. So today, I think we would see this under a very different lens and maybe people would say, no, actually we wanna stay in Sudan. We want to perhaps redirect some of those profits directly to the people. And I think we see that very often in many of the companies, successful companies um, that we invest in. They are directly appealing to the local people in order to make this a win across all constituents. So we've talked a lot about pricing externalities uh, and how important it is to think about externalities when you're looking at the individual companies. Uh, what else do you look for in, in these companies? How do you uh, think about uh, making that selection, particularly given the volatility in your space? Yeah, so you mentioned a couple uh, items here. One is risk or volatility, and we'll, I'll come back to this. The other part is profit. And it's very uh, volatile in the environment. The commodities tend to be volatile, and it tends to lead uh, to big fluctuations in cash flow. Uh, and you, if you want, lose track of what is a reasonable expectation for some of those companies. So the first thing we have to do is to make peace of what is a reasonable price expectation and define what is the cash flow comes out of this. And what's very special about my companies is after you've generated all of this cash flow, a large part of that cash flow has to go back in the ground. Uh, and that's very different than perhaps a technology company or software company where it invests in the people. We invest in plants, we invest in, in replacing oil wells that are declining, mines sure. that are coming to expiry or forests that's being cut down. Replacing all of those are expensive. And we spend a lot of time trying to define what is the cost to replace what are you depleting? And what we found is that the companies that tend to perform the best have a large proportion of their free cash, uh, cash flow as being free cash. Right. And you can reinvest that free cash flow into a debt repayment or a dividend or even better grow the business. And the finest company not only have a lot of free cash as proportion of cash flow, but they have a lot of opportunities to reinvest that free cash flow into high return project. Makes sense. One of the inputs when you're calculating free cash flow is the price at which they can sell what they produce, whether that's oil, whether that's uh, gold for miners or, or whatever the case is. Commodity prices are extraordinarily volatile and very difficult to predict. So when you're constructing your investment thesis and you're looking for, for companies, how do you put a price or a range on that commodity, which allows you then to understand um, the free cash flow generation that this company is able to, to produce? 
You're pointing on a very important uh, to, to a very important factor in investing in resources. Getting the commodity price right is central to making a good investment over the short term. Right. Many of us in in resource investing probably narrow into reasonable mid-cycle commodity price that resemble each other. The timing may be a little bit different, but 80% of us investors, I'm just looking at the consensus in the surveys, we all fall in within a 10 to 20% range over the long term. Where we differ is one where it goes over the short term, and I talked about mm-hmm. your risk taking, but two is what companies are best suited to execute over what's going to be a long-term call really. Few of us are successful over the short term. Many of us are successful over time. So can you pick companies that will have the wherewithal, whether it's the balance sheet or the margins or the management? And we spend a lot of time interviewing management because we want to know where that free cash flow is going and where how will they handle the debt that you require to build some of those very long-term projects so that you can reach uh, at maturity, if you want, that mid-cycle oil price and then harvest some of those returns, whether they're dividend buybacks or reinvestments. So to summarize, if I if I have it correctly, um, the commodity price uh, in the absolute terms isn't that important to judge what the best companies are, because regardless of that price, those companies are going to be the um, the best and, and the ones that are set up to su- succeed regardless of commodity price. Is that fair? Yes, very important in in using this mid cycle prices as a reasonable base for discussion and as a very important base for discussion with management, uh, they too need our input as capital markets players in defining where uh, is it justified to reinvest this capital? Is it justified to give it back to you investors or is it better to reinvest it in the ground according to those call it perhaps conservative or mid-cycle prices, depending on how you want to approach your investment. But you want a minimum return at a conservative price and make excellent return at this mid-cycle or higher price, given the volatility you're taking. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I I do want to talk about uh, maybe some of the um, conversations that you've had with your companies on this idea of what to do with your free cash flow, whether to put it back into the ground. Uh, and here specifically, I'm thinking about oil um, and you know the conversations about peak demand. Uh, clearly, we've had some pretty unusual uh, activity in the oil market uh, around COVID uh, and the, the associated um, shutdowns. I guess, bluntly, do you think we're at uh, at peak demand for oil? And do you think that there will be just less demand for oil going forward? We have uh, come publicly a few years back uh, by writing this white paper uh, from oil to lithium and talking about the transition that society had uh, to do in order to deal with climate change and greenhouse gases. 
And what's obvious, and I think it's obvious for many people, is the rate of growth that we've seen in in consumption for oil is is abating. And I sure. think there are many people debating what is the rate of this abatement, if you want, in growth or if not negative growth. What we know is is that until there's an appealing, and I mean appealing in all kinds of ways, appealing uh, proposition to customers to switch out of the combustion engine, uh, then it will be a slow progress. Uh, appealing uh, because I, I say appealing because when people switched out of their regular phone for the smartphone, it wasn't the price that was appealing. And today we keep talking about the price of electric cars as being a at the center, if you want, of that consideration when switching into uh, an electric vehicle. I think when there is a mass adoption, and that's what we need, I think many people want uh, in dealing with greenhouse gas emission, is a mass adoption of some new technology that would cut dramatically emissions. For that to happen, you need to offer a product that is substantially superior. And today, the electric car, although it is offering less emission per kilometers, it still drives you from Toronto to Montreal the same speed. It doesn't allow you right. to work while you're being driven. It isn't flying. So until we have something else, and I'm just giving examples here, that would justify people dramatically uh, shifting their consumption tastes, then it will be a slow progress towards this transition. Not to say that we cannot find uh, perhaps a technology within the next 10 or 20 years to make those cars all automated, in which case perhaps the automation will justify people switching uh, or perhaps allow the, those cars to uh, drive themselves at faster speed. And you'll be able to say, well, I'm saving time while I'm driving to Montreal. Not only am I working, I'm getting there faster. Or perhaps they'll be flying. And I think that people say it's far-fetched, but that's the example I often take is if the car was flying you to your cottage every night, I bet you wouldn't mind paying double for your car. And that's what we need in order to shift dramatically away from oil. So until then, we have to look as uh, society for ways to reduce our emissions and I often say to, to the clients is to say, it may not be where it is emitted that is the cheapest way to cut emissions. Sometimes it will, sometimes it will not. The opportunity is there to cut emission where you have large sources of emission. And sometimes when the, the, the prize is large enough, there's enough people going after this opportunity, and I think that people are pointing to this large opportunity in, in cars, but I could tell you also that two-thirds of global emissions are coming from uh, utilities. And largely speaking, right. three-quarters of that two-thirds, if you want, comes from emerging markets burning coal to make electricity. Today would be easy to point our finger and say, you China, you India, you have to cut down on your coal consumption. They would turn around and say, well, for us, it's either uh, cheap coal and dirty coal or no electricity. 
And I think it's a very difficult choice to impose in, on countries like this. Uh, we can do this through trade barriers or green barriers, as we call them. Uh, but it will be very difficult to force them into this kind of uh, uh, actions until we have an alternative. So we're looking for companies, actually, that have opportunities to, to cut emission. And I think I'll be a, a big part of the equation going forward. Very interesting. Um, I want to circle back on on a couple of points there. Uh, first, talking about the electric vehicle. Um, so you're talking about it becoming substantially better before you get mass adoption. Why wouldn't uh, just cost do it alone? And we know electronic ve- electric vehicles have been getting more cheap. Um, if they become as cheap as an internal combustion engine, why wouldn't that be sufficient enough to see mass adoption? If they came as cheap, uh, then they would have to offer the same autonomy. And if they had the same functionality as a combustion engine, uh, then you could make the argument, why not uh, this one versus the other? And it'd be a very close decision for many of us um, but we're talking about a slow transition in this case. And that's why we've, in our white paper, talked about a two-business cycle transition period where people get to the end of the life of their vehicle. And the average life right. of the vehicle is about 12 years, longer in emerging markets, where they say, well, now that this offering is the same, same price, same functionality, I'll make the switch to the electric car. And that takes you. I see over too long a period. And I think there's a desire for society to act faster. And for this, we need a big bang for our buck when it comes to emission abatement. Right. So so you're saying that um, in order to make that transition uh, dramatically, like your smartphone example, I think that's a great one. Uh, you need to add a lot more value for the, the consumer, which makes a lot of sense. Similar line of questioning when we talk about emerging markets and utilities there, uh, their uh, dependence on coal, um, solar, wind, energy have become a lot cheaper than they once were. Uh, In some cases, they're winning contracts just based on economics alone. Is that not a viable alternative uh, for these uh, economies to incorporate more renewables? Absolutely. And it absolutely part of the solution. It is not the entire solution, uh, but it is part of the solution. And we've often talked about uh, bridge fuels like natural gas, which are not ideal right. because they are uh, uh, making emissions one third compared to coal. And they are a good complement to renewable when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. What do you do? What do you fall back on? You need something that can switch on and off very quickly and do that at an appealing price. Um, so natural gas can do this and is widely available, particularly in developed world. It's accessible. Now, if you blend all of this, remember people very often talk about uh, solar power being so cheap, never being as cheap. That is true. Uh, but very often they talk, exclusively about uh, the solar power cost. Then you have to load on top transmission costs. Then you have uh, to load on top the costs that you create by being on and off the grid. 
what comes and complements this? You need something that's available whenever the sun isn't shining and it has to do this fast economically. And that's why the solution isn't all or none. Right. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, as you look around the world, you, you mentioned you have a global perspective on these things. Do you see any countries that are particularly efficient at, at either providing electricity through, uh, through the utilities using both that renewable plus the natural gas and they've really figured out the engineering behind it? Or is that still something that is elusive in most or all parts of the world? If you're blessed with enough hydrology, Ultimately, right. a combination of hydropower with some other renewable would be ideal. So if you're in Quebec, British Columbia, Brazil, most of Russia, then you can actually store your power behind the dam when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining and turning it back on and have very little emissions. Uh, however, most places are crowded, they're hot, mm -hmm. and it's expensive. And that, that's, we, we are again saying it's not an all or none solution and it won't be perfect. And that's why we need to go and hunt for those uh, sources of abatement in every industry. Uh, so this plan around um, putting a price on carbon, whether through as a trading mechanism or a simply a, a, a regulation that a co the, the government puts forward by pricing it, uh, then people can now think of projects to avoid or capture carbon. And for that to be effective, is that needing to be a global initiative? Ideally, it will be, right? It will be because think about it. If, if there's a ton, uh, many, many, many tons of CO2 being emitted in India and China, and they are not part of that equation, then if you right. want, you don't have access to all of those perhaps easy projects to do to capture. There is uh, one elegant solution and is being uh, considered by Carbon Engineering, a Canadian company uh, located in Squamish, uh, British Columbia, trying to capture carbon out of the air, atmosphere. And they think they can do it at a reasonable price, $100 a ton. And that's a working project. I think that the project is, is being built, so we will have to wait until we can get confirmation of that price. But it gives you an idea of what the price could be before we can make a meaningful dent in capturing carbon. So if $100 is the cost to capture it out of the atmosphere, you can do that anywhere in the world. So it could be carbon emitted in China that you capture in British Columbia, then right. that's a game changer. How likely do you think it is that that technology will bear fruit? Is that is that something that you think is um, yeah very likely? I'm not sure whether that technology is the right answer. I know there are a lot of technologies being put forward. There's a lot of money chasing ideas to capture carbon through the atmosphere or not. When what I know as humans are very ingenious in that we are yeah. likely 
overpricing CO2 today because there is a lack of understanding of where we could land after we've put uh, all of this energy to work to finding a solution. I think it is a global crisis. Many people are working on it. And usually there's an answer and we, we would not be able to predict that answer today. So therefore we as an, a humans uh, and, nature and natural psychology would be to overprice just to make sure that we could capture that carbon. You referred to one of the white papers that you uh, wrote earlier, oil to lithium. Uh, in the other white paper you wrote back in November of 18, uh, the age of resource efficiency, uh, you talked about uh, what I what I'll call a natural carbon capture, which is timber and the use of timber uh, instead of concrete for construction, particularly of larger buildings. Um, it could be my perception, but I'm not seeing that that is a, a widely adopted material for building. Uh, curious if my perception is incorrect, and if not, uh, what stands in the way from mass adoption of uh, using using timber? So I wrote that paper. The spirit of that white paper was to discuss perhaps the tailwinds and the headwinds that exist in this industry uh, and factor in, if you want, what the we've talked about the externalities and particularly CO2 being one of the largest uh, externality people worry about. There are many other externalities, uh, water being another one that people uh, often mention. Sure. But in this case, we're trying to compare perhaps uh, different materials that are used in similar industries, so in this case, construction industry, uh, you can either build uh, a multiplex with cement or even a single home uh, with cement, or you can use it, uh, do it with, with, with lumber. And there's a lot of lumber, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of timber went uh, unharvested and kept on growing. Um, and society has resisted this idea that we should be cutting trees in order to build houses as a, uh, a, a positive process. Uh, and so we've kept on uh, building houses and multiplex with cement, even though cement industry is responsible for 10% of global CO2 emission. We keep doing this. Uh, I think that going forward, if we start putting a price, on emissions, then it will put uh, one lumber under a different light. Sure. Um, so you can imagine that an old forest where all the trees are getting to maturity, uh, uh, decrepit and start degrading, emitting all kinds of CO2. Much better is a forest that's being nurtured and harvested and when the, the trees are getting too old, then they are being turned into lumber where the carbon is in fact captured forever, forever, a very long time, several hundred years right. uh, here in America, two or 300 years. Um, and you keep, so you replant this forest to capture ever more. So the analogy I use is that um, uh, teenage trees grow uh, much more then senior trees has to eat much more and they eat much more right. CO2. So if you start thinking about it this way, then this material, which today is trading at a discount, should be trading at a premium versus cement. Interesting. Um, 
I'd love to talk to you a little bit about oil. Um, I have some what may turn out to be naive questions for you. Uh, but uh, since I have you here, I thought I, I'd ask you. And it's it's an interesting time for oil. Obviously, we saw um, pretty dramatic uh, price swings uh, due to the COVID uh, lockdown. Um, so I have a couple of quick questions for you. Um, the narrative about the price swings uh, in COVID was lack of storage. The production of oil was, was coming. Demand was down because people weren't taking planes, et cetera. Um, how, do you, how do you run out of storage for oil? Um, like, isn't there, are, is oil stored in barrels? They are stored in very, very large uh, barrels. And I don't know if you've driven along the highway sometimes, you see those very large white tank. Uh, they, yeah. they may contain other things in oil, but they're usually they're hydrocarbons of some form. It could be diesel, uh, gasoline, but it's uh, a very dirty uh, product. It's, th- it's a stinky product. Um, and you don't want to have any leaks. And I think we often talk about uh, making sure the producers take care of their oil very well for a reason. It is difficult to clean up. And so you people make a business out of storing oil. And historically, we've said, you know, between 25 cents to 50 cents for a barrel of oil to store it for a month. That gives you an idea right. of a, a, a 42 gallon pail of oil costs you to store. And people are being very efficient at storing this. You can store it on a boat. You can store it in those large tanks. You can store them uh, by leaving them in the ground. Uh, or you can turn them into other products, which are e- easier to store. And everybody's playing if you want those arbitrage uh, between what is the cost to produce it today, produce it tomorrow, or produce it today and then storing it. And if you run out of uh, cheap places, Maybe we put it on a boat or some other places. I see. And, and um, so when, I mean, it was famous that the uh, the forward contract went negative um, earlier this year for, for oil. Um, and that was just essentially the cheap storage had been filled. Only expensive storage was left. Is that what the economic rationale was or is it just a rationale? <laughs> Uh, when you enter those contracts, those futures contracts, uh, and it comes to expiry, that means you're about to take delivery. You have right. to plan to making delivery and the storage is tight or you're unsure whether you're able to secure um, the storage by that time, you're in a very difficult position. So there was an oversupply of barrel for a very short time. Remember, it is also a location element. So you're taking delivery in a specific place. And if that place doesn't have storage, that means you're taking uh, responsibility for transport. Uh, so we've been used to being flush with storage, um, pipelines, a place to put all those things, but never has it happened that we've had a pandemic of this uh, nature at the same time, everywhere in the world. Usually when there's oversupply, it tends to be local rather than global. Right. Um, and I, I guess sort of continuing that line of thought, you talked about the importance of free cash flow um, and what companies decide to do with it. And one of the options was reinvested in the ground. Given oil prices, um, 
how how much reinvestment are you seeing over the past several months since uh, COVID, and what 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 might that imply for future oil production and prices? So over the past few years, uh, we had a very large wave of new supply, just at the time when the world was starting to reconsider a future for oil. Uh, uh, geology being geology, you don't, you can't really time it. If you find something great, you tend to exploit it. And I think that's what, uh, the oil shale producers in the U S particularly decided to do is they size this opportunity as so large that price became irrelevant and a lot of capital went in that industry. When in fact, uh, if it hadn't been for this great geological discovery, there would have been this potential for a decline in future demand in oil priced in into the capital allocation of those companies. So we have been telling our companies that we are uncertain how long it will take before oil is, if you want, uh, phased out. We have given a rough estimate of two business cycle I have great confidence that we'll still be using oil in 25 years. Am I confident that the world needs ever-growing amount of demand for the next many, many years? Not so much. And I think we've shifted um, our capital allocation towards a return to shareholders. And that's what we've asked the companies. Some of them have been faster than others. In Canada, companies have been more responsible, I think, than in the U.S. in reducing debt and paying dividend to, to shareholders instead of reinvesting for future growth. And today, um, you have to ask yourself, why is Tatal one of the greatest oil company, one of the biggest, along with Chevron and Exxon, are trading at dividend yields that are five or six times the sovereign yields. Because the, the market has decided it is unsure that it will be capable of paying this coupon forever because demand may right. not be there in 10 or 20 years, unlike a sovereign bond where we'll pay you 2% for the next 10 or 20 years. You mentioned some of the Canadian companies being more shareholder friendly uh, or shareholder total return friendly um, and uh, and less in reinvestment in, in oil. What does that mean for the province of Alberta? Uh, what's your outlook for that province uh, and, and the people there? No easy answer there. I mean, diversification is the key. Uh, we are proning ourselves uh, diversification within our portfolio by having many industries, which we discussed earlier. And I think Alberta, unfortunately, has their large part of their future tied to the price of oil and natural gas and investments in their province. Um, there's great mines in that province, um, great amount of knowledge, technical knowledge that can be transferred to other industries, but that transition takes time. Uh, not easy right. to transform yourself from being a petroleum engineer to an electrical engineer. Um, I think that there's a great overlap, but not complete overlap. And being a computer engineer all of a sudden of being, after being a petroleum engineer is doable, but not in a sudden manner. So 
what they have to do is really save for the future, invest in education and infrastructure, all things that we would command other uh, provinces or countries to do. And sure. I think that has to be started now. Uh, we'll transition now to talk a little bit about uh, metals and mining. We spent most of the discussion talking about uh, uh, oil. You've recently uh, written an insight uh, that came out in February that's uh, titled More Money is Coming Your Way, um, which is a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but talk to me about uh, what you found within that paper uh, and particularly particularly the impact of fiscal and monetary and uh, and metals and gold particularly. What we should have added to that title is what will you do with this money? Question mark. Uh, there was already a lot of money at the time. Uh, in fact, in this white paper, we describe a monetary environment where there is more money being created compared to GDP, even compared to the Second World War or First World War. So which were dramatic events in a society that forced governments and uh, the society to invest in reconstruction, for instance. We do not do not have that as an excuse today, yet we are creating more money than we did at the time. Uh, now with the pandemic, uh, the, we are reaching a new heights. And the question is, what happens when there is so much money being given freely, uh, perhaps to people who need it, but still given freely and that's money that we do not have, that we have to uh, borrow against. Um, so the money goes into society and has to find a home. And unfortunately, what we also know is that money tends to not be distributed equally. Sure. Those who have most money get more money. And those who have a small amount of money tend to be awarded a small amount of money. Uh, and paying it back today is not an appealing solution for governments either. Everybody wants healthcare, better education, better infrastructure, ideally green infrastructure even. The last thing is, is the governments want to do is take on a full-on recession, reduce spending, because right. it will mean saying no to all of those aspirations. And that's in the corner we have uh, put ourselves as a society is we're not willing to cut on any of our ambitions, yet we are theoretically limited by the amount of money we should be able to dispose of. So one great solution is to borrow more. And historically, what would have happened is that interest rates would be uh, rising if a country would want to borrow more. Uh, now, if the central banks is willing to create this money, then perhaps it can uh, limit the rise of those uh, interest rates by buying bonds in the market. So either government wants to build a bridge, I need a billion dollar. If I have to borrow a billion dollar, then maybe theoretically the interest rate should go up. Now, if the central right. bank says, you know what, I'm different, I will actually lend you this money at half price. Sure. And you create money out of central banking, you give it to the government. Now, also in the past, those tended to be isolated events. 
i.e. there would only be one country involved in those kinds of dealing, uh, which would depreciate the currency by making all of that money all, all of a sudden available, then it would depreciate by oversupplying the market with this currency compared to other currencies. Not appealing either. You need a stable currency to have a stable industry. Now everybody's doing it. So in that white paper, we describe an environment where Japan's involved in creating a new currency. Same thing with uh, Europe, same thing with China, US, Canada, and with this pandemic, it's just about everybody around the world. This money is being put into society and widely available. Different level for different class of society, but it is widely available. And what surprised people is that the uh, house prices have not come down. And I often say, well, why do you think? Because interest rates are so low and there's a lot of money around and it needs a place to being put to work. So when we say there's a lot of money coming your way, we mean it. The problem is coming everywhere. So if everybody has money, then everything should be priced up. Now, the question is, are you positioned as an investor to reach your retirement goal if this becomes a game-changing event? Because if you are in a 1% sovereign bond, is there a risk that perhaps your retirement goals are delayed because the price of the cottage that you wanted to buy for your retirement just went up 50%? After all, there is 50% more money. So why can't this price, why can't the price of this cottage be up 50%? And I think that's the great problem that we have today in advising our client into what to do in this kind of environment. I would advise to any client to buy good quality companies, whether it is a Darren McKernan's fund or Paul Musson's Ivy fund. Those are great companies that will reprice as more money comes into society. But many of us are capped by the amount of risk that you take by being invested in the equity market. And I think this little episode is a reminder. Sure. Then you can turn yourself to bonds, but if those bonds are only buying you a 1% appreciation over time, you have a problem. Where else can you go? And as an alternative asset class, we were pointing to gold bullion and gold stocks, which tend to behave very differently and provide risk reduction to the overall portfolio. Um, very interesting. And and I, I guess in the um, picture that you just painted, what you're really referring to is, is inflation um, and inflation sort of permeating throughout the society because of all of the stimulus that was a fear that people had back in uh, the great financial crisis um, coming out of that. And the, the, uh, the stimulus, we did not see a commensurate uh, pickup infl of inflation. Do you expect it to be different this time? And, and why, if you do? I guess to talk about inflation, you have to define what you want to buy. And I do not foresee the population wanting to buy more milk or bread. After all, we do not have a growing population, not meaningfully anyways. And we do not have yet a supply shock that would force 
uh, those kinds of items to go up in price. However, it's well documented that real estate prices in all major cities, whether it's in Canada, in the US, in Europe, in Japan, in China, are going up faster than government bonds. We also know that university tuition are going up faster than inflation. So I'm going to go back to the first comment is we know that the money isn't distributed equally in society and uh, wealthy people do not intend on buying more milk or butter. They will be buying good companies. They will uh, save some more. They will buy real estate and other real assets in order to protect their investment. And that's the real question for all of us is how to define our retirement goals and what will be the inflation that is related to those retirement goals. Very interesting. Uh, Benoit, thanks very much for your your, uh, insights on that. Um, We always conclude these podcasts by getting a series of recommendations for you, uh, from you. Uh, So let's start with some of your favorite books. Well, there's quite a timely book that's coming out uh, by Stephanie Calton that talks about uh, modern monetary theory, a complicated world, which basically describes how governments and central banks uh, talk to each other in financing great infrastructure project uh, using newly created currencies. It was a far-fetched idea uh, two years ago. And I think it was written before the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 events. Uh, so it's coming out as we speak. Uh, and she's advisor to uh, the Trump administration. So we'll see what she can do here. But I think that it will become a, a much more mainstream thought going forward. Very interesting. Um, yeah, we should we should come back. I should have you back on the podcast to talk about MMT uh, in more and more detail. Um, but let's let's continue on. What are some of your favorite podcasts? Well, for sure, if you're into investment, make sure you listen to Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Uh, week after week, he has some great guests. I haven't been invited yet, so I haven't made the great list yet. <laughs> One day, my aspiration is to get invited on that uh, show, which is uh, Invest Like the Best. Well, I'll send them this podcast and hopefully uh, that'll get you on. We'll see. Um, how about uh, favorite places to eat? Not that you're able to do so now, but uh, what, what places do you particularly like? So I guess uh, I'll make a Canadian recommendation. I think we'll all be here in Canada taking our vacation in the summer and uh, restaurants uh, open, at least uh, the way it looks like it will be open in Quebec City. I would recommend that you head out for La Planque. Uh, for those uh, who have good friends here will know that it means that's where you seek shelter uh, in tough times. Right. So I'll, I think it's a probably appropriate uh, a place to be this summer. Excellent. Uh, last one for you. Uh, as you, as we've mentioned, uh, we're sort of in the, um, we're in Ontario. We're still uh, locked down for the most part, particularly in the GTA. What are you most looking forward to once this lockdown lifts? Heading out to La Planque. Perfect. Excellent. Benoit, thanks so much for, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. 
content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.